Tiffany & Co. rose to be a symbol of luxury over the years. I tend to associate the brand with the little blue boxes. Whenever I see a small turquoise box, the first thing that comes to my mind is Tiffany. But the company did not have an all-rosy history, running into severe financial troubles in the early 1900s. Let's dive in to see how they made a comeback. With $1,000, Charles Tiffany and John Young opened the Tiffany & Young store in 1837 on Broadway. At first, the store carried stationery and costume jewelry. After some time, another partner joined the company and they started selling more expensive jewelry and added items such as watches, ornaments and perfumes. Things started to take off when they designed wedding gifts for the famous performer, Tom Thumb. They then got further noticed after they built on their sterling silver designs in the mid-1800s. Charles Tiffany eventually bought out his partners and renamed the company to Tiffany & Co. in 1853. Tiffany & Co. repurposed some manufacturing sites to help the Union Army during the Civil War, providing swords and rifles. By 1867, Tiffany began to rise in fame after it became the first American company to win the grand prize for silverware at the Paris Exposition. Tiffany's customer base expanded to include wealthy Europeans, including royal families. Tiffany would make sure to accommodate any jewelry requests his clientele would have. In 1878, the company acquired the world's largest diamond, known as the Tiffany Diamond, which is still on display in the New York store. In 1886, Tiffany redefined the concept of the diamond engagement ring. He created a design that put emphasis on the diamond. The design was such that light would pass through the ring prongs and the diamond, which would accentuate the diamond's brilliance. The Tiffany blue boxes that were designed to carry the rings became as popular as the rings. Customers wanted to buy the boxes on a standalone basis. But Tiffany refused to sell solely the boxes. The company naturally became a reference for luxury lifestyles of the Gilded Age. The firm continued to grow despite Charles Tiffany passing away in the early 1900s. But then came the 1929 stock market crash. Tiffany's revenues took a massive hit and the company resorted to layoffs to maintain its head above water. Net income fell to less than $15,000 at some point. Despite all this turmoil, they never stopped paying dividend, which is quite impressive. They were smart enough to accumulate earnings to weather bad days. By mid-1900s, sales started growing again, but it was nowhere close to the pre-crash levels. It was believed that management was not doing a good job at reigniting the century-old brand. An outsider built up a stake in the company and tried to take it over, but he was denied a board seat. To prevent a takeover, the heirs of Tiffany's sold 51% of the company to Hoving Corp. Walter Hoving, the owner of Hoving Corp., wasted no time in implementing his strategies. For the first time in Tiffany's history, the store started bargain sale. The inventory was also slimmed down to contain only best-selling items. Hoving also hired a bunch of talented designers to create the most luxurious line of jewelry. But the company also began catering for other types of clients, selling lower-priced items and opening more stores across the U.S. Tiffany's brand was further elevated by the release of the film, Breakfast at Tiffany's, adapted from the novel that was published in the 1950s. All of these worked in favor of Tiffany's. Revenues picked up the pace and net income broke the $1 million mark in early 1970s. Tiffany was then sold for over $100 million to Avon Products in 1978. Avon spent quite a bit of money to open more Tiffany stores and computerize the firm's operations. However, profits were slipping away as Tiffany's prestige took a hit. 
They were trying to compete with department stores by selling inexpensive watches in China. At some point, their status dropped so much that the store was compared to the likes of Macy's. Affluent customers would thus discontinue shopping at Tiffany's stores. In mid-1980s, Avon decided to sell Tiffany to a group of investors led by William Cheney. The group tried reinstating Tiffany's image among the affluent and embarked in cost-cutting strategies to sustain the added interest expense that resulted from the buyout. By late 80s, profits were back up and the firm went public again in 1987, using part of the proceeds to pay down debt. Tiffany introduced new product lines, such as fragrances, scarves and handbags. They introduced limited collections in some stores, which proved to be quite a hit amongst the affluent. The firm's blue book catalogs were still effective marketing tools in spreading the fame. The early 1990s were tough for Tiffany & Co. as they were navigating a weaker economy in the midst of recession. They began concentrating on lower-priced items but at the same time they strived to maintain their luxurious image. The mid-90s marked strong expansion internationally, opening stores in Italy, Taiwan and South Korea, among others. They also started a string of acquisitions, buying more than 100 manufacturers of precious metals and the likes. To get a sense of how Tiffany has been performing since the turn of the millennium, I have plotted their revenues over the last 20 years. The general conclusion is that revenues have been on an uptrend, although the last few years have seen a slower growth. It is still impressive that Tiffany's grew its revenues from 1.5 billion in 2000 to nearly 4.5 billion in 2019. The company dove into celebrity endorsements to maintain its luxury status among millennials. Lady Gaga became the face of Tiffany in 2017, and other models such as Kendall Jenner and Carolyn Murphy joined the cast. At the end of 2019, Tiffany was sold to Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy for over $16 billion. If you had to propose to your significant other, would you do it with a Tiffany's ring? Do you think that their products are worth the hefty price tag? As always, let us know what you think.